But I am absolutely an optimist that technology can enable better social wellbeing outcomes than if we didn't have it. Certainly in a time period and at a scale that maybe hasn't been possible before. But it's very challenging. And I think one of the big risks is that the people who should be in that conversation around, say, data ethics and things are the non-believers. And so they're not part of the conversation. And that's really risky and dangerous. Hi there. I'm Holly Ransom and welcome to Coffee Pods. It's time to fire up your day with some fuel for change. We run on a simple hypothesis here, that the humble act of grabbing a coffee with someone inspiring is all that it takes to tap into your ability to go out and be the change that you want to see in the world. Coffee Potters, our coffee date this week is with a phenomenal entrepreneur and urban designer, Lucinda Hartley. I've been a long-time admirer of Lucinda's career. She started life as an urban designer, asking herself questions around how we build better place, how we integrate community more effectively. Now she's running a technology startup that aims to give us greater insight into what makes places work. And from it, I think we can extrapolate some really interesting lessons around how to build great cultures and great teams. Lucinda. Lucinda Hartley, I'm so pumped to finally have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for making the time. Oh, pleasure, Holly. I've been wanting to catch up for ages. It's my pleasure. <laughs> it's a good way to do it, right? <laughs> yeah. And it's great. I was saying to you earlier, like one of the, the coolest things is watching someone that I've uh, admired for so many years um, just go from strength to strength, honestly, in that five, six years sort of that I've had the privilege of knowing you and following your work. But I've also loved kind of learning all these new elements and dimensions to you and preparing for this podcast. So there's so many uh, layers that I'm excited to, to tap into with you. Uh, one of the things I wanted to start with is sort of this, the, the origins of how you ended up doing the work that you're doing, mm. um, you know, because you've had a fascinating career in uh, obviously urban design, this whole piece around community engagement and how you, you bring people more into the heart of how we think about place and space. Now you're in a co-founder of a technology company, uh, which is a whole other new dimension to what you do. When you were little, what did Lucinda want to be? <laughs> yeah, you know, my, my passion and, and my like long-standing sort of professional passion is for cities and places. And I, I tell that to people sometimes and you just get this blank look. <laughs> it's yeah. like, what? I don't even know how you could be excited about that. <laughs> um, but in a way, if I really think back, that passion, you know, perhaps indirectly stemmed from a really young age. So uh, when I was growing up, we lived in a lot of different countries. I lived in Zimbabwe and South Africa and Switzerland and the US and the UK. What did mum and dad do? Uh, my mum's a climate scientist. Wow. And my dad's a geologist, so I guess he's a climate scientist in kind of the four billion kind of time. <laughs> um, and, you know, in the 90s, it, there weren't cheap airfares. It wasn't like you just sort of ducked across to Kenya for three weeks. And it, it seemed, for whatever reason, more logical to just move us. So that's what they did. Wow. Um, I did uh, the bulk of my high school and, you know, in Australia. But we did sort of have these... I guess I now see as perhaps sort of unusual interruptions to my schooling <laughs> where we would be travelling for six months or something. Must have been a great learning experience though, culturally what you would have been exposed to as a kid. Yeah, look, and I guess I haven't known any different, but what I have known is that the things that have really impacted me is that I grew up, one, with a, a sort of sense that the world is a really big and diverse place and also a really strong sense of social action. I guess having been, having a real visual picture of what inequality looks like from a very early age and you know not able to kind of ignore that in my experience has really fueled my passion for um 
social action. I guess the city's piece comes from living in different places and seeing how, you know, your living environment connects people and culture in so many unique ways. And then to study urban design and feel like, you know, that we were maybe designing places all with the same rule book and they were all kind of looking the same and maybe not doing justice to the amazing brilliance of humanity and community in the way that we shape places. So, yeah, I think the, you know, I came to cities in kind of a roundabout way, but I, I, if I look back, it's really been influenced by uh, my upbringing in, in, in seeing the world from a young age, I guess. Yeah. yeah, and I'm interested, you said, you know, a big part of kind of your, your experience and, and probably what drove some of uh, your interest in, in the career you've built is sort of that exposure to inequality. Um, do you mm. remember your first moment where you were kind of conscious of, of inequality where it really kind of starkly showed itself to you, I guess? Well, I remember we were um, in Harare in Zimbabwe when I was 12 and I, I remember one moment um, walking down the main street and there was a, a girl who was probably the same age as me, I, I would imagine, with a baby on her hip and, and she came up to me and, and we were just chatting but then, you know, she said, look, my, mother, my mother's blind, like, can you help me? And I just remember feeling completely powerless in that situation uh, that, I, I know in, in some ways I was like as young and I didn't really understand the dynamics of the world and poverty and other things, but I could see that, you know, I was in this massive position of privilege. But I didn't know how to act on it. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, she had, you know, all this incredible experiences in her life. And, um, you know, I guess that was one of perhaps several moments that I remember just being quite confronted and not knowing what to do with that. And so, I mean, obviously your pathways, you've, you've worked out or you've gone, you know what, I'm <laughs> going to make the best go at I know how of doing something about this. When did that sense of, of I can be a part of the change kick in? Another kind of changing moment for me was at the end of uni. Um, I went and spent six months living in Cambodia, um, you know, working with some family friends there who run an in English and other kind of community support service uh, area. And in what, that? what made you decide at the end of uni, I've got to, got to have off to Southeast Asia for a little while? Well, all my friends are going to London and that sounded so boring. That's actually how <laughs> it felt. I was like, oh, why would you want to go there? That's like everyone does that. I want to do something else. Um, and I, I hadn't at that point really, you know, worked out what I really wanted to do. Like I'd studied landscape architecture at the time and, you know, that seemed like a bit of a big step to go to Southeast Asia. But yeah, I I did that. And I think like many people who have experiences of traveling outside their comfort zone or being, I guess, exposed to different ways of life. I I learned a lot from that experience, but the main thing I learned was that I'm not a good English teacher. (laughs) If you, you know, with any, any kind of community development, you should be supporting the strength of a place that's there or offering skills that you're really good at (laughs) and I'm not not good at teaching English so but I did learn uh from that I guess that that was a real moment that shifted that I wanted to spend my career working in social action in some way and so that made me really start to explore questions of how did cities influence inequality how did cities bring about positive outcomes for people you know if that's my professional background um what were ways that that I could work to sort of change the dial on on that conversation. I love that. One of the quotes I've read that you said is, I never questioned my capacity to enter technical professions, but it took me a long time to give myself permission to lead. Yeah. What was the tipping point there? 
that this is something that I sort of question a lot because in many ways I, I feel like I've always been an advocate. I've always been massively involved in, in different kinds of social change activities or other, other leadership activities in different ways. But it wasn't until like my mid-20s, which these days I would say is actually quite late to come to the party <laughs> with like, you know, you should have started a business when you're 15. <laughs> yeah, I agree. If you haven't had your exit by 21, what are you doing? Sort exactly. Of thing, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was maybe 25, 26 and... I had at that time or, you know, spent some time working in landscape architecture and urban design. I was working for large multinational companies, had incredible opportunities. I worked on like the MCG redevelopment and Flemington Racecourse and um, these great projects. Yeah, it it sounds good, except what I was actually doing was specifying the type of aggregate that you put into the concrete. So whether it should be like 70% bluestone and 30% quartz and how far apart the like gaps in the concrete should be so it didn't crack. I mean, someone needs to decide that. But Super like, important, I'm sure. I was like, I was going to get you out of bed in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, this is not how we create change in the world. <laughs> and also, um, probably not what you signed up for when you did your degree or kind of thought about your career path, I imagine. No, like. that's right. And look, there are people in those careers who really love the detail. And the detail is, you know, it's important the concrete doesn't crack. Don't get me wrong. But right. like, <laughs> just not, not gonna have the right that. people. Yeah. But I think till later in the picture, I, I was really trying, I was really trying to sort of for five or six years trying to resolve this question of like, you know, if you work in city making, which mm-hmm. you know has been my job where you're, you're designing where the footpaths go, where the roads go, where the streets go, things like that. These, these are decisions that influence tens of thousands of people on a daily basis. And I just felt like I was sitting up there in my office drawing lines on a page that, which is going to influence thousands of people and feeling so disconnected from the human story. And I was trying to find ways to connect those two. So like I was volunteering with different community organizations and other things like that. And at the the end of the day, I just got frustrated that I couldn't find a, a, I guess a, a profession that, combined those two and I think it was just out of that frustration of, of seeing that uh, I guess the community development space didn't didn't understand um, the mechan- mechanics of cities very well and that city planners um, weren't as engaged with the human stories they could be that mm. I really wanted to resolve those two and so that led me to launch initially co-design studio in my previous um, social enterprise uh, but it was it was that permission to actually say that's okay that Mm. I can do that, which actually took me a long time to to come about, um, to give myself permission that it was okay that that I could be the one who's part of that story of solving that problem. And tell me, I mean, you, you stepped out into kind of an uncharted territory there, talking about bringing these two worlds that sort of had never really met or understood one another or conversed properly before. Where did you turn to for inspiration or uh, or for how to think about what navigating doing something in that area would look like? Mm. So I looked globally there are examples of that happening uh who does it well you know kind of where did you turn in the world to look for that inspiration yeah so there are there are groups at the time at least um in the u.s that i was following and and ended up building relationships with like project for public spaces a a placemaking organization is kind of pioneered a more collaborative approach to improving spaces um and there were other individuals that i uh followed and then got to know through UN Habitat and others and I guess subsequently worked there for a little while too. But there was different people that I was sort of trying to 
<laughs> just understand. And I ended up finding a mentor here in Melbourne who had had sort of run a consultancy that worked in international development. He was an architect and I, I, was, <laughs> I was probably Rocking really frustrating. I probably just kept emailing, going to be like, oh, we have to meet, I need to understand. Boy, how do you do this? So th- there were certainly good examples of that happening before. It's just that I'd never run a business before, let alone tried to run one that had a really, really complex business model. Yeah, completely. Trying to answer questions that didn't really make a lot of sense to a lot of people. Yeah. What was the hardest part of that? Did you find the business model side hard or actually kind of helping people join these two dots in the actual technical side of your work? Yeah, I found the business model the hardest because we were... Or oh, and is I mean, Co-Design Studio still has uh, uh, is doing amazing work. We were selling services, I guess, that would offer clients ways of not only delivering better outcomes for their neighbourhood, like a park or something like that, but also at the same time delivering that park in such a way that would engage the community so that you ended up with a a stronger community as well as the park at the end. And, you know, the value proposition there was like, you know, if you've got local leadership involved, they're going to maintain it, they're going to be supportive, you're going to reduce your costs in the long run, it's, you know, you're going to reduce your social risk and everything. But it was was hard for, uh, I think, for clients to either understand that process or understand why they should invest up front in that. Mm. And so kind of uh, making that sustainable was challenging um, and continues to be challenging. But I must say that I feel in the last five years particularly, the whole sector has shifted the dial on that, that social sustainability is now at the forefront of the conversation. Placemaking is now common language in the property sector. Mm-hmm. And that really wasn't the case five years ago. So there's a, it's um, enormous progress. And so, um, and I'm really excited about the outcomes that that means for the whole sector. Oh, I can bet. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I can imagine there are lessons in what you went through there. Like I'm thinking about kind of what you would have learned about what, is present or what needs to be present for community to function well. And then the application of that even to, to culture in the workplace, to, to thinking about the spaces we all work in and out on every, every day. What did, what did you kind of learn through that journey that would be applicable to each and every one of us in our day-to-day around being more mindful or intentional around um, how, we, how we structure to create an optimal community? Mm. The, the fundamental principle, I think, is recognising that, you know, the community, you know, however you define that to be, it could be your staff team or um, your neighbours uh, or, you know, a, a diverse multicultural group, you know, such as my son's primary school, uh, that that group is the expert in their lived experience of their place mm. and to listen to that first of all. And I, I feel that's often the mistake we make in urban planning is that we're, we're, our heads are so full of ideas of what's worked well in Copenhagen or these yeah. great, and look, yeah. there's great examples. Like, you know, I'd love to have bike lanes like that everywhere. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, to sort of try and almost feels like kind of imposing this idea rather than um, taking time to, to really value and listen to the expertise of what's local. And that could be in your workplace that your team has a lot of lived experience about what's working well and not working well for them. And if we, if we have such a great idea of what it's going to be like in the future and this other external strategy that may be incongruent with their experience, then that's not going to go very well. So like just 
you know, change is good, but taking time to recognise and value local leadership is, is really the fundamental principle of what we've built a lot of our work around. Which kind of starts to touch on this notion of um, it's something I know you're really passionate about, which is diversity inclusion. So mm. how do you kind of create those spaces for um, the, the input of different perspectives to come to the table? In your view, like from what you've observed and seen, and we'll, let's take Australia as the context for this one. Um, mm. Part of what I find interesting about your comment there, and I, and I don't disagree with it whatsoever, I agree, but I feel like we've been talking about this notion of it's important to consult the people we're seeking to serve generations which is like at the the bedrock of social change and yet time and time again I I see examples of where we've just we failed to practice it so how good do you think we are at embodying kind of diversity inclusion in our in our process and in our decision making and what what lessons are there for us to learn we're really good at talking about it (laughs) (laughs) we are aren't we uh, so, it's so hard to do. Yeah, I mean, the observation I would make is that in the, yeah, again, so in the past five or ten years, the dialogue has changed so much, and and like, that's so important because to me, that's the first step. You have to be able to have to at least be all talking the same language before you can enact mm. change. So at least these things are being talked about, recognised on the table, um, which you know they weren't when I started working. So that's like exciting, but yeah. we're so far from doing it. Uh, you know, if I look at my space, which is, you know, in city making, I think one of the big challenges is that the traditional tools that we've used to try and understand different voices uh, create a certain bias. So if you have surveys, if you have, um, if you need to, you know, go to a council website and provide feedback, if you need to, someone on the streets asking you a question, um, there is a certain self-selection that will come from that process. Yeah. Uh, and, you're, you know, you're more likely to engage if your English is your first language, if um, you have a level of education, if you've got free time on your hands. And so, you know, you, you get this kind of biased view in the decision-making at the community level. Uh, and while there's lots and lots of ways that you could improve that, um, that tends to be the default. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of what we were exploring uh, at Co-Design Studio is ways of creating more inclusive conversations by, you know, running a pop-up space rather than a survey so that people who were just experiencing the place could be involved. And with Neighbourlytics, which is uh, a social analytics platform for neighbourhoods, which we're now looking at. Um, creating, collecting data for cities, we remove a lot of that bias by just measuring the digital footprint of a neighbourhood, looking at where people spend time, not asking people to opt in or self-select. Yeah, or through their own selective perception, you know, have a particular view of the way they might answer that question versus the way that the data would tell you it actually takes place. Right, yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And I wanted to ask you, I mean, you're in the tech world now and, mm. and I'm fascinated by the impact that technology is having on humanity, on community. You know, um, are you a tech optimist when it comes to the role that technology is playing when, when I'm, I'm talking about level of connection, mm. well-being, belonging? Yeah. Or do you think there, there are big questions that we need to be really thinking through at this moment in time to make sure that, that community doesn't become weaker by virtue of technology? Yeah, I'm an optimist, uh, but I certainly think that that should be, we need to be very cautious with some of the kind of big ethical questions right now, particularly, you know, we work in in the data and big data and there's a lot of questions around that at the moment, but I am absolutely an optimist that technology can enable better social wellbeing outcomes than if we didn't have it. Um, And certainly in a time period and at a scale that maybe hasn't been possible before. 
So, but it's very challenging. And I think one of the big risks is that the people who should be in that conversation around, say, data ethics and things are the non-believers. And so they're not part of the conversation. And that's really risky and dangerous. And I think we need to have more diverse voices in that conversation. Completely agree. Now you've run a, a couple of organisations now, Neighbourlytics being the, the current one, obviously co-design uh, prior to that. What have been your biggest lessons as a, as a founder and someone who's, who's built and scaled um, from a vision through to conception through to, you know, operating and employing people and the like. What are, what are your big takeaways that would be advice that you'd give to uh, a first-time entrepreneur? Mm. Yeah, well, I can speak from, like, my long list of failures and I'm doing it for the second time now, so I'm, I'm, I'm getting better at, like, maybe short-circuiting. <laughs> so as my first-time founder, I really tried to do everything myself too much uh, and I wasn't clear enough on recognising things that I was really good at and things that I would be better to have someone else to support in. And so I think now, and it's much clearer now at Neighbourlytics because our core product is a data analytics product, which I am certainly not the person to build. (laughs) So (laughs) so we're um, able to delegate more explicitly, I guess, to to team of experts. But, But even in things that are less defined, I think, uh, I, I stayed perhaps too bogged down in the detail and didn't wasn't able to to get above kind of into that leadership strategy space enough of the time because I was crossed too many levels um, in co-design and so I think uh, we've you know my experience of leadership is that just knowing where your strengths are and finding the right people that you trust to be able to work in a complementary way uh, to to you in that would be. Mm-hmm be one uh the the second i think is having a a vision that's big enough but is also able to bring the team on board uh, at the right time and i think at various times those conversations for me have been in sync and out of sync um and right now enabletics like our vision that we're all you know our vision is absolutely global we want to be in 100 cities within three years i I don't feel like you've ever had a problem with the big vision base no i don't (laughs) think we have a problem with the big vision but maybe less on the sort of like bringing the team along (laughs) what have you learned about how to do that well then what have you kind of been really intentional about second time around yeah i think look we've got that big vision from the outset and i think what um you know and this is often what happens as we sort of learn and grow in our leadership style but you know, in my, my previous organisation, we went through a couple of different pivots and a couple of different changes. And so even though perhaps the values and principles of the organisation changed, the, the entire business model was like reconstructed like two or three times. And so it was a pretty different place, like year five or six and it was year one or two. That probably meant that there are people who would have been the right people for one or two and not necessarily for year five and six, but yeah. we perhaps weren't clear enough on how we transitioned those roles through. and We didn't always have the right people in the right roles, I would say. Um, I think with uh, what what I've learned from that and trying to apply in, in you know the current sort of situation is yes we've got that big vision from the beginning and so we're always aiming for a, a really massive global impact and having that as part of our onboarding process with staff around we are heading here but obviously we're not there now but this is where you're we're heading up for this. Yeah. This is what you're signing up for. And that means because we're only 10 people now and we want to be in a hundred cities in three years, that means that's going to be a chaotic rough journey. Like just think about that. And so I guess having that expectation ready on board early means that I think we're able to recruit people who 
not only buy into the vision, but buy into the practical reality of being part of a startup that's growing quickly, which means it's going to be fun and exciting, but also kind of chaotic and busy at times. <laughs> and how do you manage that personally? Because a lot of founders, um, and, and you know as a listener of the podcast who have shared their stories, you know, talk about the challenge of feeling quite lonely, talk about the extraordinary demands in terms of the um, just the work volume yeah. you've got to get through to scale. You, you mentioned there the chaos of that growth journey. Yeah years how do you kind of prepare yourself for it and do your best to manage your energy yeah it's really tough <laughs> I, I don't think there's very many easy answers to that I feel really fortunate at Nablelytics that I have a co-founder Jessica so that's a scenario that just allows us to share some of that loneliness I, I do certainly know what that feels like to be the one who's kind of carrying all the problems of the organization at all levels in your head all the time as I feel like even though we have we still have crazy heaps of work to do that somehow that that level of we have someone or we each feel we have someone that we can share that load of problem solving with which is huge and obviously you know that's not always the case and and co-founders can be problematic as well I know so but having having that has been a huge uh advantage in in this phase I don't know if I manage very well, really, with my own time. I feel like I work most of the time. <laughs> most of the You've time. got young kids too. Yeah, yeah. That's a big juggle. Yeah, yeah. So, but I, I think I'm also, I'm consciously choosing this, which is another thing that, um, that with, you know, without wanting to make sure sound like it's okay or that, you know, I don't feel this has just happened by accident. You know, if I wanted a different job, I could, you know, I'm fortunate to be in a position where I could take another job if I want another job, but I don't. Like, this is what I'm choosing to do. And I think that uh, level of intentionality gives me some comfort in the times when it's like 1am and you're trying to finish some proposal or something and everything's crazy and you think like, okay, well, of all the other things I could be doing right now, do I still choose this? And like, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah you got that reason why that keeps burning. Yeah. That's awesome. And I wanted to ask you, I mean, one of the things I found really cool reading about kind of uh, some of the blogs that you've written and stuff was this decision that you made a little while ago to take a 12-month career break. Now, mm. I think you're on mat leave with yeah. your, your second child. Second, yep. And you moved to Samoa. Samoa. Which is <laughs> yeah. a little bit of a curveball. Can, can you yeah. explain to us the backstory there? Well, yeah, that, that's my, my, uh, my husband works in the Pacific. He works in international development. And so when we were pregnant with my second, he had a, a like almost kind of one of those crazy coincidences and had the opportunity to take a job in Samoa, which, you know, normally would have been like, uh, like we're pretty busy here. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, like living, like the, at the, time, living like- in the Pacific is like not really on the radar right now. I think when we found out we were pregnant, sort of that situation changed a little bit and I didn't really take my leave with my first it was like I have this habit of I like I start businesses when I'm on maternity leave that's like (laughs) two from two so no more children yeah I was gonna (laughs) say so should I should I be aware of any future businesses that are coming yeah so I was pregnant with my first when we started co-design and um I guess Nablelytics was what is it about pregnancy that fuels your creativity crazy uh hormones maybe or your courage or something I don't know yeah um so but it seems like I I wasn't really planning on taking that kind of a break but when that opportunity came up that seems like you know why not and that was a that was I mean it was great but it was also massively challenging I mean I think if I'd if I'd taken a year off locally it's a bit you know we had a six-week-old and we moved to a remote Pacific Island. <laughs> so it was oh, like, no. it was a challenging time, but I, you know, I may, I really on the balance, 
that was a, an amazing opportunity to have great headspace. Yeah. Um, that was quite life changing. What, what changed? Yeah. Well, I guess we came up with Neighbourlytics, you know. There oh, was, is that where it was born? Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We worked some more. With lots of uh, remote uh, distance phone calls to my co-founder. <laughs> uh, on the days that the phones weren't down. <laughs> yeah, that I can imagine too. It, it also really changed my perspective on, um, and I, I hate this word, but I'm going to use it, but work-life balance because mm. I just, I find that's like, this strange concept that we can be it feels to me that if we're saying that it's almost like that we're two people and that we're one person at work and we have this other life and that we're trying to keep those two people in balance but I feel like we're like one whole we're one kind of messy hole and we can be one messy hole like all of the time so I think what I learned about like I particularly from someone culture obviously is very family focused like you know, to the point that it's maybe frustrating sometimes <laughs> because, like, no one's ever at work because there's some family thing going on. Yeah. Um, but I, I felt that there, 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 there absolutely wasn't that divide that you should be one person at work and another at home. And, uh, and that made me actually reflect a lot on how I wanted to be as a leader and uh, how I wanted to operate and, um, you know, the visibility of my children at work or other things like that. So, uh, you know, there's some good lessons from that. Um, so from a practical standpoint, what did that kind of change for you when you came back? How did you work and lead differently after kind of, or was it really hard to not get sucked back into the norm of how we do things in Western, Western culture? Yeah, it's hard not to get sucked into the norms, but I, I think the big change for me was that I talked about my children. So I used to not talk about them actually no. almost intentionally because I was worried to be fair, this is crazy, but worried that there would be these kind of preconceptions of, what it would be like if I started to, you know, say publicly in a talk or something, use examples from my family or something like that. So I didn't. And now I, I, I've realized how ridiculous that is. <laughs> and so for me, it's more like there's this really active dialogue of, you know, just sharing the different experiences and making sure that, that that's part of who I am and that's part yep. of life. So, yeah. I love that. Like, I guess it's that whole piece as well around just that holistic view of, well, I am one person and this is an enormous part of me, so why wouldn't I share stories about that as readily as I would the, the work that I'm doing in a community? Yeah, and it often means, I mean, there's a couple of other things. Like now if I'm asked to do a talk on a weekend or after hours, I always ask them to pay for childcare. Mm-hmm. Um, I often will bring my children to conferences and things like that. They're not too noisy. Um, <laughs> so th- those sorts of things that just, I guess, makes life practically easier for me. But also I think what I learned from Samoa is like, you know, family and life are just all the same thing. So yeah, <laughs> we can adopt a little bit more of that sort of Pacific vibe. <laughs> yeah, I can bet. And you mentioned uh, the role of a mentor earlier. I mean, how significant mm. has sort of that ability, you mentioned kind of the, the significance of having a co-founder of support, mm. of kind of those sources of, uh, of support in a, in a kind of mentoring context and just those sounding boards from an advice standpoint being. Oh, so important. Um, and, and, and I've had, I've been so fortunate to have so many different mentors over the years and, and that's changing for me again now as I'm really sort of seeking mentors who can help, uh, I guess, change our thinking and mindset as we really grow a global tech company. I'd love I to touch on that with you. Cause I feel like we don't often talk about this notion that mentors change. Or yeah. Change. Yeah. Yeah. No, definitely. What and are I, you I learning that. about that at the moment or how are you thinking through it? Yeah, so I guess I'm trying to approach some new mentors. <laughs> so probably in the same way as I did before, just like that annoying person on emails. Like, oh, I'm the same person. So you may both. Can I have a phone call? Um, 
I found that where, yeah, certainly that I have, I have some mentors who are perhaps more of mentors on a personal standpoint who I, you know, would continue to meet with long-term. There are others who are perhaps more challenging our thinking on either a technical or work or other, other front. And, I, you know, the value of that I found is that there's someone who's kind of outside of your daily experience, but who knows you well enough to be able to kind of just ask questions and, and coach you through some of the, the big unknowns, which there are so many uh, in leadership. And at the moment, I feel that I want to be challenged to think like really big and I want to be able to um, put the right mechanisms in place as we're growing this rapid scaling tech company that are going to really help us in the long term. And, and we haven't done this before. I haven't, my co-founder and I both don't come from a technical background. So, you know, we haven't, I said my whole, I've been, you know, in business and in startups and things, but not in, uh, not in tech. Mm-hmm. And this is, this really is a new world. So there's lots that we want to try and do right, I guess. And so people that can offer us practical advice in that, as well as um, just have the courage to pick us up when we could be doing better. <laughs> I think sometimes the word mentor scares people because they think there's I uh, I don't know, there's a formality to it or they're not quite sure how to approach them. Like what's mm. been more, for the want of a better term, like strategy for how you bring mentors in to what you're working on or you seek their input and advice in, in a way that's been really beneficial. Like what have you learned about how to do that well? Mm. I mean, someone said to me once, this might have been like 10 years ago, that everyone loves talking about themselves. <laughs> and so if you offer to buy them coffee just to sort of, you know, let them talk about themselves. <laughs> they usually say yes. Uh, and my experience has been they usually do say yes. I think forming a, you know, meeting once and then forming a mentor relationship is harder, I suppose. Yes, I agree. You need to be like at the, <laughs> the third coffee if you be like, so <laughs> can we do this again? <laughs> Warming into it. Yeah, but I, I think trying to make it easy for them so that it's not something that they need to do but also I think we often assume that because people are very visible or uh, very busy and things like that that they would definitely not do that and my experience has been that's not the case that people that even in that situation are open to having the conversation um yeah love that what's the best bit of advice you think you've received is there any particular words of wisdom that have really rung true for you and have, have been quite pivotal to how you've navigated the decisions you have Mm, that's a tough one. Lots of different advice. <laughs> you know, I, I, probably the best advice actually is to be, um, is to almost understand your own priorities. You receive lots of different advice about the same issue or topic and they're often conflicting. Mm-hmm. And so I think the best advice that I've had is that like, you know, your business better than anyone else. Yeah. Um, and like, of course you should seek advice and, and mentoring, but at the end of the day, you're going to have to make a call sometimes when you've got advice from both angles and, and to kind of back yourself that you know it, you actually know the detail. Everyone else is coming at this from sort of an outside view, but you know the inside best and that you can make the best decision. Now, speaking of advice, we like to move people from kind of inspiration and ideas on coffee pods into taking some action. So after listening to everything you've shared and reflected on, if you could encourage people to a call to action, what would you like to Um, challenge them to go and do Mm. well as a tech believer (laughs) i would encourage people this might seem strange but to engage with technology more and i don't mean go and spend another day a week on facebook or like sign up for more social media accounts but i mean actively 
engage with the technology debates and conversations because I feel that the people who need to be in that conversation often are just sort of in the don't care zone or it's too hard and they are the people that we absolutely need to be engaged in challenging these really huge questions that we're facing in the next decade around particularly data ethics but other technological questions. So I'd encourage people to engage with tech more. <laughs> Love it. Good brief. Very, very on point. I like it. And listen, I can't thank you enough for the time you've taken to share with us today. It's been so interesting. I think you will have pushed the boundaries of the way a lot of people think about just the intentionality or the lack thereof sometimes with which we can go about decision-making processes in the world around us and encouraging people to bring more of that humanity to the core, to think about the questions that they're asking, the people that they've got sitting around the table make inputting into that. And obviously the journey that you've been on too will be a source of inspiration. Yeah, absolute pleasure. Thanks, Holly. It's been great to chat. Thanks for listening. I hope you're feeling fired up to be the change that you want to see in the world. I'd love to hear about the impact you're having. So hit me up on social and let me know what you're working on. And if you've enjoyed the conversation, why not keep it alive and share it with someone in your world? I'm Holly Ransom. Let's grab a coffee again soon.